Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, we welcome Dr. Leslie Whitman to the program. Hello, Leslie. Hi, Joe. It's good to see you. Yes. Uh, Dr. Wickman has a long association with RTB, and we'll hear about that in just a moment. She's an internationally respected research scientist, engineering consultant, author, and inspirational speaker. For more than a decade, she was an engineer for Lockheed Martin Missiles in Space, and we'll get into more of her bio as we go. But Ken, uh, let us know the particular topic you'd like to discuss with Leslie and what brings her to the studio today. Well, it, it is a pleasure, first of all, Leslie, to welcome you to Straight Thinking. We're glad to have you. Glad to be here. And of course, Leslie, uh, Joe and Dave is one of our visiting scholars, and so she's going to be giving talks to the staff. And uh, uh, Leslie, I think I've known you at least 20 years or so. Yeah. You've probably known Hugh even longer. Yeah, that's probably true. I mean, we first started interacting when I had first started at Azusa Pacific University as a faculty member there. So that was back in 2000, I think. Wow. Tell tell our audience uh, your a summation of your Christian journey, your story. Okay. I think they'd love hearing that. All right. Sure. Yeah. Well, I grew up in a Christian home. Um, came to faith at the age of seven in Sunday school when our pastor uh, spoke to us and basically presented the gospel message. Um, and really for as long as I can remember, even before that, I thought of Jesus as my best friend mm. and uh, <clears throat> grew up in a home that uh, in addition to being faithful Christians, uh, my dad was an engineer and my mom was a nutritionist. And um, so, you know, science was part of our daily lives. Uh, science and engineering. And um, in fact, my dad had a telescope when I was growing wow. up and used to take us out in the backyard on the rare clear starry nights in the Pacific Northwest <laughs> yeah. to look at the stars and the moon and the planets. And, you know, that I think sparked my early interest in science. Um, and then as time went on, I uh, encountered uh, various atheists within the you know science education sure. uh, arena, and the first real challenge for me was my uh, junior high biology class. Okay, and um, you know the the teacher would go so far as to say you might as well just leave your faith outside the classroom because what we're going to be talking about in biology is almost certainly going to contradict what you've heard at church. And, uh, and, you know, here I am, what, how old you are, 12 years old, I guess, in yeah. junior high school and thinking, what on earth do we do with that? You know, I mean, we've been taught and, you know, grown up in a family that believed in God as a creator and the Bible as scripture. And, you know, how do I reconcile what this guy is telling me in biology class with what my entire worldview is mm -hmm. based on? Yeah. And uh, so that, you know, I look back on that as a kind of a challenging time, but at the same time, I'm grateful for it because it set me on a path at an early age to figure out how science and faith fit together. So that's pretty much formed yeah. the foundation for, um, you know, my faith journey since, and yeah. um, especially figuring out how to reconcile science and faith. Now, 
I shared with you yesterday in a little conversation we were having that um, one of my favorite philosophers, Mortimer Adler, and Dave and Joe remember this quote, Adler says that scientists are by and large highly specialized, but not broadly educated. Now, I don't think he's taking a whack at scientists. I think he's referring to the way scientists are typically educated. Right. And I'm, and Leslie, I've been in a room with six different physicists, and I'm like, you're just all physicists, aren't you? <laughs> How did you move uh, toward your career? Because on one hand, you're an engineer. Uh, science is something you have a great passion for. Mm -hmm. But I've noticed, too, in our discussions that you love the humanities. Absolutely. You love the social sciences. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about your focus in those areas. Right. So as an undergrad uh, at Willamette University, I studied political science. Wow. I, in fact, I majored in political science. And Willamette was, uh, or still is, a liberal arts institution. And, you know, very much prides itself on a broad education uh, in the classics. And so in addition to uh, political science, you know, history, English, um, you know, all of the humanities, as well as social sciences, psychology, um, were integrated into the curriculum. And I also took a lot of math and science along the way. Yeah. Um, so for me, I have a huge appreciation for that breadth of education and and the, how it contributes to helping students think cross-disciplinarily uh, as well as think critically. And, you know, the conversations around the various humanities and how they interact with the sciences is just so valuable. And I think, you know, in creating uh, thinking people and good citizens yeah. uh, that know how to think critically and, um, and, and problem solving as well. Um, you know, what do we know about a particular set of circumstances that can help us think through a problem? I think all of those things are so valuable as part of a broad liberal arts education. You know, I think of the founding fathers of America, when they talked about education, they said that it should do at least three things. It should give you a skill so that you don't have to steal. You can go out and have earn an, earn an income. It should also make you a productive citizen. You can vote, you can exactly. serve on a jury. But then they said it should also create a, a circumstance where you could pursue the truth. Yes. And here's a question I have for you. You've been an engineer. You've worked in various areas of uh, science and technology, but you're also a, a passionate educator. How does that I think both you and I share a pet peeve, and, and that is lots of students these days, they view education as something that's going to, it's not an intrinsic good, it's an instrumental good. Yeah. I would, tell, tell us a little bit about that and your thinking about it. Yeah, and it is, it is a pet peeve of mine because, you know, I, uh, most, I think, uh, good teachers, when they enter the classroom, are excited or have some kind of a passion about the subject that they're wanting to communicate. And, you know, in interacting with students in the last 20 years or so, 
Unfortunately, what I've encountered by and large is, I mean, there are the rare exceptions of students that are there to learn and they're you know, for the pursuit of knowledge and the love of wisdom, but by and large, you know, the typical questions I would get are, is this going to be on the test? Because if it's not going to be on the test, I'm just going to tune out while you wax eloquent about your (laughs) subject. (laughs) (laughs) And it just, you know, it's really discouraging because the, many of them, I don't want to say everyone, but but many of them view it, as you said, as an instrumental good in terms of, you know, how how can this class, passing this class, help me get my college diploma so that I can go out and get a good job and make money? And instead of, like I say, this kind of pursuit of knowledge and love of wisdom, and it it's very discouraging. You know, uh, Joe and Dave, I I share that same frustration. I I remember I was telling Leslie, uh, you know, 20 years ago, I was teaching a class to a group of mechanics who were earning their degree and developing. And I had to work very hard at trying to to convey to them that uh, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle might have something to say that might challenge them in their in their practical exactly. work experience. So you said their life needs a tune-up. <laughs> let let me uh, let me ask a further question here, uh, Leslie. Um, you know, with a background in philosophy, I often talk to lots of scientists, and it's a and it's a great pleasure because they come at things so differently than I do. They think about things differently. They have a very different orientation. But sometimes I'll ask them, well, why do you think science works? I mean, what what is it about science that it actually corresponds to the natural world? And that topic is sometimes kind of lost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you you find in your experience as a scientist um, that people who are working in those particular fields, and and let's say they're not Christian in orientation, Mm -hmm. do you think most scientists who don't happen to be Christian, do you think they're hostile to Christianity, or do you think they're ambivalent? That is, does their scientific study kind of drive them to ask the deeper questions about life? I think it depends. You know, I mean, there are as many probably different perspectives on that as there are scientists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I do think, you know, you raise an interesting question in that, you know, I think someone has to be very circumspect and um, uh, thoughtful in the first place to think about kind of the, the larger picture of, you know, how does science work as opposed to just applying the scientific method in the lab. Yeah. Right. And so you, you really do have to kind of step back from that. I certainly not something that I was ever uh, taught in grad school. You know, yeah. most of my science and edu- engineering education was in my master's program and my PhD program. And there was certainly no attention to kind of the history of philosophy of science or even the scientific method and how it works. It was just, you know, straight into the kind of nuts and bolts of of science and engineering right yeah. so so i think that you have to really be curious in the first place okay. to kind of ask those questions and you know unless you 
are kind of circumspect and thoughtful about it, you you might not even be thinking about those questions. However, there's still, I think, many opportunities for that kind of awe and wonder response to the things that you discover in your science. So for example, whether that's, you know, um, looking at looking through a telescope at yeah. the heavens, you know, and be, being so inspired by how big and how massive and how old all of this is. Yeah. Um, or if it's looking through a microscope at cells or, you know, yeah. bacteria or whatever the case may be, or, or you know, uh, investigating uh, DNA, you know, right. you can have those awe and wonder experiences at any point in your scientific process. And I think what that does is motivate people to ask the questions about why and mm. how, and, and that can lead to a pursuit of what's behind all this. Very good. Right. Dave, you are, uh, you're a scientist. You studied at Caltech. What they tell me. <laughs> how do you how do you relate to what Leslie is sharing here? I I agree. I you know being at Caltech for a total of at least eight years, both undergraduate as well as graduate. I never had a course in philosophy of science. Um, it was just you know diving in. I mean, maybe the theoreticians, uh, which I was not, I was more of an experimentalist, uh, had uh, some training in that area, but there were no classes that were offered to all of the students in, uh, you know, giving them some perspective in the way that you're talking about. Uh, just one comment about uh, this discouragement that you expressed, uh, Leslie, about finding students who are really interested in engaging at a deeper level. I think it's partly because the college uh, degree doesn't mean the same thing as it meant 50 or 100 years ago. Yeah. I think it was tailored uh, more to the intellectual and to the academic uh, pursuit, uh, to the person who wanted to understand things at a deeper level yeah. in the past. While now it's more of uh, what, as you said, uh, how can we get uh, educated enough to have a career? Right. And uh, so there's only going to be a fraction of the people within that college environment or within the colleges themselves. Yeah. There's only a few colleges that will uh, address these kinds of issues and have students who care. Yeah. No, that's a really good observation. And I, I caught myself many times while I was in those classroom situations, kind of thinking to myself that, wow, you know, a four-year college degree is kind of equivalent to maybe what high school graduation used to be yes. years ago. And yeah, so there is that real utilitarian aspect uh, to, a, you know, a large portion, certainly of the, the students and, you know, but you do, like you say, you, you do come across the exceptions who yeah. will come and talk to you after class or who are in the honors programs. And I mean, I love the fact that a lot of the liberal arts colleges have these great works based honors programs that, that do allow the time and the depth of uh, conversation to get into meaty conversations and, and, you know, questions of real significance. Yeah. Um, so that's encouraging. And there, there are actually a number of uh, kind of startup 
uh, great works programs that yeah, are great that, books. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That are popping up across the country, which is encouraging. Joe, question, comment from you. Uh, I, I just want to ask Leslie, for the sake of our listeners who don't know you as well as uh, some of us, uh, where are you teaching? It sounds like you've been teaching a long time. Where are you teaching? What are you teaching? Uh, and uh, how's that going? Right. So I'm actually in an administrative role. Some would say that I've crossed over to the dark side, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm in an administrative role at Biola University now. Um, mm. I'm the director of the corporate affiliates program and uh, kind of taking advantage of my experience, both in industry as well as academia, to form partnerships uh, with uh, outside organizations that will be kind of mutually beneficial for the outside organization as well as for the university. Uh, so things like, you know, collaborative research, uh, scholar exchanges, internship opportunities, um, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Uh, I have a space flight question, but that can wait, Ken, if we're going to get to that kind of thing. <laughs> um, Leslie, I want to ask you uh, to kind of put on your, your own Christian thinker cap. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it's really a, a two-way question. I want to ask you what you think is the most, I, I'd use the word probative, that is, what evidence or argument or way of looking at the world that provides you strong support for being a Christian theist? Mm -hmm. But I also want you to look at the other. Is there is there an argument or way of looking at the world that makes you pause and say, wow, uh, that's a pretty good challenge to our mm, faith? Mm. Great questions. And um, there are a couple of things to that come to mind when you talk about, you know, the, uh, the most significant evidence um, in support of the truth of Christianity. And um, one of the things that I think comes to mind immediately uh, and certainly was instrumental for me when I first started understanding the connections between science and faith. And um, that's the fine-tuning argument. Mm. And um, you know, fine-tuning argument, which is known by many names, right? The Goldilocks yeah. principle, the anthropic principle, really sure. looking at um, all the amazing uh, synergies and intricacies of the way uh, the different universal parameters, whether universal laws or um, uh, uh, ratios of certain materials or to others you yeah. know, at the subatomic particle level, um, all these different things are just seem to be finely tuned to provide a universe where life can exist. And <clears throat> the more I look into that, the more it reminds me of Romans 120. That the truth about God can be clearly seen in what He's made, um, and His divine attributes. And you know, I think when I first started looking at the fine-tuning principle, I I thought, well, yeah, you can see God's power and might, and and just how uh, big He is. Yeah. Um, but the more I've looked into these elements of the fine-tuning uh, argument. I see it's more than that, mm. you know, that, that God designed this place that humans cannot just barely survive, but rather th flourish and thrive. Yeah. You know, it's not that we're some biology experiment, yeah. you know, we're so like, let's see how bleak we can make the circumstances where life can still 
exist. But no, it's this amazing environment where we can flourish and thrive. And to me, beyond the the might and power of the creator, it also speaks to his love mm. and his provision for his created, right? Yeah. And so so to me, that's that's probably one of the the biggest pieces of probative uh, evidence. Now, now, let me ask you a question before you look at the challenge. Um, as a philosopher, theologian, uh, talking with particularly engineers, you know, we talk about God as a, as a, uh, we talk about him as the creator. When I talk to engineers, engineers, I think, have a, a special burden of proof that is the work they have to do has to work in the real world. Mm -hmm. You can't, it's not just theoretical. Yeah. It's like, well, here is this idea and this is how we're going to make it work. Is that fine tuning argument, which is so profound. Do you think that has a special influence on people that are kind of the engineering types? It might. Well, um, that's, that's an interesting question. I hadn't thought about it uh, specific to engineers, but but there is possible, that's a good possibility. I mean, um, I do think of, you know, the specifics of the fine-tuning yeah. argument that yeah. do make it so compelling. And maybe it is my engineering brain that that really responds to that. I mean, one, one example that I absolutely love is <clears throat> the fact that Earth's gravity is just exactly what it needs to be fine-tuned on a knife's edge so that it can hold on to the water vapor molecule mm -hmm. at 18 grams per mole, which is absolutely essential for life, yeah. but not methane or ammonia at 16 and 17 grams per mole, which would, are poisonous to life. Yeah. So we, you know, Earth's gravity holds on to some methane and ammonia, but most of it floats up to the upper atmosphere and gets stripped off into space. So we don't have large amounts of either of those two gases, but yet we're perfectly capable of holding on to all the water vapor we need. And just that in itself to provide a life-friendly planet and not a poisonous atmosphere is yeah. to me, it's just mind blowing. And that's just one of a, a lot of different hundreds of different examples yeah. right so so yeah so i think you know you might be onto something there with the kind of connection with engineering or nerds or geeks whatever yeah. you want to call us um <laughs> maybe it, it does resonate uh i know the analogy of you know having a a, a program board you, you're dialing in all mm -hmm. of these necessary elements and it's like well, how would that be if there's no mind behind the universe? How do we account right. for that? Well, let's then flip it. Yeah. Because I think all thoughtful Christian theists recognize there are challenging issues. Sure. What what might that be for you? Right. So if we just kind of continue with the same example of yeah. fine-tuning argument, I mean, the 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 biggest, most popular challenge to that in uh the astronomy or astrophysics community of, is, of course, the multiverse hypothesis, okay. hypothesis, right? That says that perhaps, you know, our universe is only one of possibly an infinite number of others. And so there then is this speculative uh, infinity of possible chances to get all these things just exactly right. Um, on the flip side, though, I, I, 
I'm sure you're all familiar with, um, you know, Paul Davies and some of the quips that he's made about the <laughs> multiverse hypothesis and how, um, you know, to appeal to uh, an unseen uh, number of universes that we can't, we have no access to, uh, rather than trying to come up with a reasonable explanation for the one that we do observe is the antithesis of Occam's razor. Yeah. It's an infinitely yeah. complex solution. So, and there's a there's a, a thinker who uh, he's interesting in my mind, Paul Davies. Uh, I, I was uh, listening to a podcast he was being interviewed and. And he said, I was, yeah, the other day I was reading St. Augustine. I almost hit the card in front of me. I thought, what is Paul Davies reading St. Augustine? I love it. But here is a person who has a broad knowledge of science, but he is very sophisticated in being able to say, okay, how do we think through those kinds of issues? Right, so, right. yeah, that's, uh, your answer kind of struck me because, I've had lots of conversations with Jeff Swearing about this mm -hmm, topic. Yeah. And I find it interesting to kind of when all of our science group gets together, I can't understand the details, but I, I try to track the broad themes. Mm -hmm. And it's it's interesting for people from different disciplines to yeah. go back and forth on these issues. Absolutely guaranteed. In fact, I mean, <clears throat> quite honestly, I mean, my my faith has been so uh, supported by my investigations in science and 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 how science and faith fit together that um I'm honestly at this place where it's like look we need to take God out of the box that we've created for him hmm. and let him be God and you know you know take off any artificial boundaries or restrictions that we've put on him and I mean quite honestly I'm at a point where Everywhere I look, God shows up, mm. you know, that I say, bring on the multiverse. My God is big enough for a multiverse, yeah. you know, and if, if we do live in a multiverse, then God is the God of that too, yeah. you know? And, and so, like I said, I just, I just feel like everywhere we turn, we see evidence of God's hand and, and just the intricacy and synergies that we, we observe and, everything working together in such orderly fashion. I mean, you know, another question we could ask is why do we have physical laws at all? Yeah. Let alone such finely tuned ones, right? Yeah. Why isn't everything just utter chaos? You know, God is a God of order and we see that reflected in scripture and in creation. Yeah. And so, like I said, I just, my view of God is, is so expanded through my science investigations that, like I say, I'm, my God's a, He's big enough for any concept that we throw at him. Now, one issue, and, and Dave, I might want you to jump in here. I mean, one one challenge that I think of as a non-scientist is how how significant is observation and scientific investigation? I mean, a multiverse is beyond our capacity to detect with telescopes and microscopes. As a scientist, as an engineer, in your mind, how important is this ability to test and observe and detect? Well, the scientific method pretty much relies on it. 
right? Yeah. I mean, you, you have to be able to uh, make observations. Um, the, the way I kind of simplify the scientific method for my students is that the scientific method looks for the best explanation mm -hmm. given the set of evidence that we currently have, all the while knowing that new evidence could show up tomorrow yeah. right. that would say, no, you're not quite right. That that paradigm doesn't work anymore. Um, and so you need to come up with a better explanation, right? Yeah. Uh, but it is based on evidence, right? And so, um, but I don't know if you read Stephen Hawking's, uh, I believe it was the last book, The Grand Design. Yes. Uh, where he kind of hints at, well, not even really hints at, but he, he speculates that um, the kind of clumpiness of matter in our universe um, and um, the... Uh, the ripples that we see in the cosmic cosmic microwave background energy um, could be caused by interactions with adjacent universes. Okay. Right. Because I mean, when you think about the Big Bang, you know, most people think of just a a regular explosion. You would expect an even distribution of matter. But we, when we look at our universe, we don't see that. We see this clumpiness that allows uh, stars and uh, galaxies to form. And we see the, the even the ripples in the cosmic microwave background energy. Well, what caused that? And so yeah. Stephen Hawking then says, well, maybe, and of course it's completely speculative sure. because we have no access to look at those other universes or even from a, a yeah. macro view of the interviews, universes interacting with each other, right? So there's no real evidence. He's completely speculating here, but it's an interesting thought. And, and it is it is in keeping with kind of an abductive reasoning that yeah. if we were to postulate that, the, that postulation might explain what we see here. Yeah, Okay. exactly, yeah. Joe and Dave, questions, comments? Oh, I, uh, yeah, I... I, I agree with you uh, on the challenge that multiverse provides, although, uh, as you've noted, there are a lot of scientists who uh, who question whether this is real science. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's a, a, a real challenge to those who pursue that avenue. What I was a little surprised at, I was expecting when uh, Ken asked you what you felt the biggest challenge to Christian faith was, that it wasn't the problem of evil. Oh, I'm sorry. I actually, I maybe misunderstood his question. Because <laughs> yeah, well, no, that's that's fine. I, I mean, I think your answer was a good answer, but uh, that's the common response you get from people. I, mm -hmm. I'm curious to know whether in the people that you tend to, you know, interact with, whether the problem of evil is the biggest challenge to the Christian faith or not. Right. That's a, that's a really good point. In fact, I mean, I was responding uh, with regard to, you know, the kind of the scientific question. Sure, sure. I understand. Um, but yeah, at large, I think, you know, certainly the problem of evil is the hardest one to provide a satisfying answer for, I think. And I mean, I think, you know, in the, the way that I think about it, um, you know, it's all about uh what comes along with free will. And I think that, you know, a big part of why God created us was the free will aspect of having a relationship that would be freely chosen by uh, his, his creatures, 
Uh, in other words, the angels didn't really, they were designed, they were kind of programmed to love God, mm. but um, humans were designed with free will from the outset and given the choice of whether to love God or not. And, and honestly, I feel like that's the crux of, of our relationship with God is it's a, a freely chosen yeah. relationship. And um, of course, with that comes the risk that people will turn away from God and do evil things. And, and, and so I think that was a risk that, you know, I mean, God being omniscient had to obviously be aware of, right? Yeah. There's a, the risk that uh, evil would uh, come out of that. Um, but, you know, for someone who's suffering through the loss of a loved one or going through a very difficult season of life, you know, that that might not be a very satisfying answer. Yeah. Right. And so I think I think it is truly the most difficult question uh, for the Christian faith. I think there are answers, but I'm not sure how satisfying those answers are. Joe. Yeah, I have a question, Leslie, since we've been talking about space. Uh, uh, some people would say that, uh, well, we seem to be in an era of space tourism, and some people would say we've made a mess of things here, so we've got to get to Mars and start all over. Well, first of all, I want to get your comment on that idea. But secondly, you have a PhD in human factors and biomechanics from Stanford University. And if I understand your background correctly, you uh, have trained astronauts, designed spacesuits, and you're an expert on spaceflight physiology, all of that. So uh, I'm asking you what that might look like to try to get to Mars. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a great question. In fact, the more the more I learn about planetary science, um, the less I think trying to colonize Mars is a good idea. <laughs> and in fact... Uh, in fact, the more um, stewardship it has inspired for me, and, and really, I think I've become somewhat of an evangelist for environmental stewardship and taking care of this planet. Because again, when you, I, you know, I go back to the fine tuning argument, you know, yeah. and how incredibly fine tuned not just the entire universe or the galaxy or the solar system or our you know, or anything that surrounds us is for life, but the planet itself is so fine-tuned for life. Yeah. And anywhere we look, and especially at the, the planets that are our nearest neighbors here in the solar system, you know, both Venus and Mars are hostile to life. And, you know, Venus more so, granted, with its crushing atmospheric pressure and its ridiculously hot temperatures, but Mars with one one hundredth of the atmospheric pressure that earth has um you know you if if water if uh water ice becomes liquid on the surface of a Mar of mars it immediately boils and evaporates mm. um uh, mars's gravity is too weak to hold on to water vapor uh we just talked about how yeah. earth's gravity is barely strong enough to hold on to large amounts of water vapor uh, Mars has three eighths of the Earth's gravity, and so it doesn't have a prayer <laughs> yeah. to, of of holding on to water vapor. And so, you know, you know, there's some ideas floating around out there about the idea of terraforming Mars, but 
in order to terraform another planet, you have to be able to sustain an, a, a livable, breathable atmosphere. And because of this gravity problem, Mars's gravity is not strong enough to hold on to that uh, uh, life-giving atmosphere that in includes water vapor. And so, um, so we would be constrained if we if we decide to go to Mars and colonize Mars, we'd be constrained to um, living in pressurized uh, vessels. You know, so we could build up a you know a city uh, of pressurized vessels, but you know, I'm an engineer. <laughs> Yeah. And man-made things tend to have problems, right? And, you know, and so kind of you think to the the maintenance issues, the resource issues, uh, the logistics issues of, of getting supplies and re any other sort of resources, including human resources between Earth and Mars. I mean, you know, we've got some some real problems in terms of kind of making that a sustainable situation. Um, and then when you start to look at you know, the idea of exoplanets, you know, planets around other stars, obviously the travel time to even the nearest star system uh, other than ours is, is just prohibitive. I mean, you know, the Alpha Centauri star system is 4.3 light years away. Uh, we can't even currently travel at one one hundredth of the speed of light. But let's say that we advance our technology to the point where we could, you can multiply that 4.3 times 100, mm. and that's 430 years travel time. And trying to keep a, we, we already know that what happens to the human body for long duration space flight, you have severe deterioration of the cardiovascular system, uh, musculature, uh, the, the skeletal system. And you know the longest we've ever had anyone in space is barely over a year. So imagine trying to keep generations of people in space en route to another star system where we don't even know what kind of planets there are, right? Mm -hmm. So so like I say, all of these considerations have made me a huge advocate for environmental stewardship and taking care of the planet that we do have. Yeah, very good answer. Thank you for that. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the uh, stewardship uh, idea because uh, I think our, anybody associated with RTB uh, likes hearing that and what we need to be doing now in light of, uh, you know, what's going on in our planet. Yeah, that's, that's a really great question and a really big topic. Um, yeah. So there are so many things going on right now. And I, I think, you know, um, the environment is, is very complex uh, with so many different factors that go into it. And um it's very difficult for our, us to fully understand all the different uh, pieces and parts of, of our environment. And, and I guess primarily right now, because of the, you know, the current uh, topic that's on a lot of people's mind is the climate change issue. Right. And climate is so incredibly complex and uh, difficult to predict accurately because of all the different factors that go into it. Uh, but what I come back to is uh, we are responsible for what we know, right? And we know that polluting is bad. <laughs> we know that uh, being uh, gluttonous consumers of resources is bad. 
uh, let's do what we know. Do what we can not to pollute the air or the water or the land. Uh, do what we can to conserve resources. And I think, you know, the, the mantra, reduce, reuse, recycle is a good starting point at a personal level. Um, but really, I think, like I said, we need to act on what we know and we need to be um, careful consumers. Uh, we need to be more aware of um, uh, where the things that we buy are coming from, um, you know, due to transportation costs and, you know, uh, manufacturing practices and all sorts of things like that. Um, but like I said, I think being responsible for what we know is right is what we're called to do. And, you know, like I say, I think there's some really basic things that we all should be doing, you know, minimizing um, our consumption, um, uh, preventing pollution wherever possible, um, reducing the use of natural resources, and and having conversations with people about it, honestly. I mean, I think, I think um, you know, this. those are things that we can pretty much all get on board with is, you know, being responsible stewards, regardless of where you stand on some of the current issues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, our, our society these days is so polarized that people are honestly, I think sometimes afraid to have any conversations about what could turn into a controversial issue. Right. But I think there are some real meeting points where we can get come together and say, look, you know, this is the only livable planet that we know of. And, and making Mars into a second earth is just not realistic. I mean, we, we can send people there, we can colonize, but it's never going to be a second earth. Yeah. Um, and so we need to take good care of this planet that is so perfect for us. Very good. Thank you. Good, good answer. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the uh, word uh, stewardship that you used as well. Uh, Ken, as you know, um, uh, Christians uh, look to the book of Genesis to see that we have a mandate by God. We're created in his image. And this is his world that he created, Amen. but he put us in charge. So I like the word stewardship. So thank you for that. Yeah. Leslie, let me, let me ask you a further question about people who have a great passion like you do for science. I, I was talking with uh, Mike Strauss, who's a physicist and a professor. And I we were having a conversation over lunch. And I said, um, Mike, many people who are not scientists who happen to be Christian, they think that uh, secular scientists are, are angry. They're angry at God. They're hostile. I said, what's your experience? He said, well, when I go out with my you know, our group of faculty, he said, I would describe them more as kind of ambivalent. Um, they're not hostile. It's not that they want to debate it. It's like, I have to even kind of pull them into it. What is your experience? You know, many scientists who are Christian, you have also encountered those who are not. Mm -hmm. Um, are scientists like everybody else in the sense that they're trying to live their life and take care of their family and earn a living? And Yeah, I mean, I, I really think so. I mean, in fact, if you look at um, Elaine Howard Eklund's 
recent study out of Rice University. I don't know if you've seen that, but but she actually reports that 61% of practicing American scientists uh, self-identify as Christian. Wow. Exactly. Exactly. Now that includes social scientists as well as okay. the physical scientists and life sciences, life scientists. But still, it's an impressive number that you don't hear very often. Right. And so <clears throat> quite honestly, again, I think as I've become more grounded in um, how science and faith uh, relate to each other, um, and I I realize that there are a heck of a lot of Christians out there who are scientists, mm-hmm. I guess I, I, instead of going into a conversation with kind of worrying about what somebody's going to think or or whether they're going to be offended or, you know, whether they're just going to completely shy away from the conversation. I go in kind of with the assumption that, you know, um, we have some common ground in terms of our science, as well as um, the uh, the principles of this country that was, you know, our forefathers were Christians and, and founded the country on, on Christian values. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, that's a good starting point for a conversation. And so rather than going in kind of being uh, nervous about the conversation, I just sometimes we'll start talking about the fine tuning principle or, or <laughs> something, you know, might catch people off guard, but um uh, you know, I, I'm just so passionate about these things that I, I love to talk about it or, or maybe it leads in by, you know, somebody asking me a question about what I do. Yes. Um, and that's a natural, uh, segue into a conversation about, you know, I, I talk and write about science and faith. I, uh, work at a Christian university. Um, and if they express some interest in a little bit more, you know, I mean, sometimes I get kind of an incredulous response, like, oh, that must be interesting. (laughs) And one of my, one of my neighbors recently, when they found out that I was at uh, at Biola said, do they even teach science there? (laughs) And I'm I'm like, oh my goodness, I've got some work to do. (laughs) Well, in light of that, let me ask you this question. I've always thought you were, you are very skillful at relating science uh, to the Bible and to Christianity. I mean, I've been to APU with you where we've had a conference and there were young earth creationists there. There were evolutionary creationists and there are even some Hugh Ross old earth people. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you how do you skillfully work through that? Because these are these are brilliant people who are very passionate about their viewpoints mm-hmm. and sometimes they're pretty disagreeable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I like to uh, start from the premise that, you know, if we trust God uh, as who he uh, proclaims himself to be in scripture, then we should also trust his revelation of himself in nature as a reliable witness. Mm -hmm. And so the key is feeling, you know, figuring out how God's revelation of himself in scripture uh, fits together with God's revelation of himself in nature. The two books idea. Exactly. The two books idea. Exactly. And how it's, it's our job to figure out how those two books fit together and, you know, inform each other and inform how we look at 
uh, each book of Revelation. And so, and I also come from the uh, point of view that these questions about origins and how these books fit together are not fundamental to our salvation. And so why should they divide us, right? We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, yes, there are various viewpoints on, you know, uh, time frame and how God created, but we all agree that God created. Mm. And we all agree that God created us in his image and we are image bearers. Yeah. And as image bearers, we need to demonstrate the, the character that, uh, that God calls us to and the fruit of the spirit. Right. And so that we should be loving and kind and um, patient with each other. And, uh, and so I start from there. And like I say, for me, I try to kind of keep the conversation as emotionally neutral as Mm -hmm. possible. Um, And and let's just share ideas. Let's talk about the evidence. Let's talk about our interpretation of the evidence, but let's not get upset with each other because it's not fundamental to our salvation or how we see God. Very good. Dave Rockstad, question, comment. Well, of course, there are among those uh, differing views, people who do think that uh, how we think about whether it's old earth or young earth, for instance, is fundamental and and determines whether we're compromisers and and, uh, true Christians or not. So I don't know how you deal with those kinds of things, but that's always yeah. an issue. No, you're absolutely right. And, and um, you know, I guess um, I don't see them as divisive <laughs> issues or view, points of view. And so it's kind of like, um, you know, when you're a little kid, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Type of thing. And so, you know, it's like, it doesn't threaten me if somebody... Um, who has a different position than I do, uh, thinks that my position threatens my salvation because I am sure that it doesn't. I'm convinced that it doesn't. I know, I know my relationship with God certainly better than an outsider does. And so I'm not threatened by that. Um, and so I think, um, in, in, in those situations, particularly if the moderator can keep their cool then I think it sets the tone for the conversation. Right, right. Joe, question? Uh, yeah, it's kind of a fun question. Uh, have you seen the movie Top Gun, the, the latest one? Not yet. I'm oh, sad okay. I, haven't, I just All haven't right. gotten around to it. I absolutely want to. It's at the top of my list. Yeah. But Well, uh, even though you haven't, I'll still ask the question, since you have a background in fighter pilot proficiency training. <clears throat> um based on uh, what you may have heard about the movie, what's it like to, to be in a plane like that? Because those of us who saw it, uh, that's that's like the whole thrill of, of that movie, for me anyway, is yeah. watching those pilot scenes. Mm-hmm. So what's your what's your feedback, your comments on wow, being up yeah. in a plane like that? Well, I can't wait to see the movie, but I have in <laughs> fact flown an F-16 simulator. Wow. And that was pretty darn cool. And I've <laughs> I've flown live in a T-33 jet trainer. And I've also gotten a ride in 
uh, P51 Mustang. Wow. And so I've gotten, I've had quite a bit of experience. Um, you know, I have my pilot's license and I was able to take the stick during the T-33 flight. And that was pretty, pretty darn cool. Um, but I will say in terms of, of live experiences, the P-51 Mustang ride was the best. <laughs> I mean, that was, it was just That's amazing. A World War II plane. It is a World War II plane mm. and loud as all get out and fast and maneuverable and mm. aerobatic and, um, pulled more G's than we pulled in the, the T-33. Um, mm. anyway, mm. um, yeah, I absolutely love that kind of stuff. I mean, even honestly standing on the ground and watching fighter mm. pilots, uh, mm. fly overhead is, is exhilarating for me. Um, I think another fun experience I had back when I was with Lockheed is uh, going out to Palmdale and standing at the end of the runway when a SR-71 took off over oh my, my head, <laughs> which was pretty cool too. Mm. Yeah. Oh yeah. I love Great. planes. I have a need for speed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great answer. Thank you. <laughs> you know, my father was a combat soldier in World War II. And when I talked to these men, who unfortunately now the whole generation is passing. But when I, you know, I would talk to these guys that are airborne, you know, they're jumping out of planes during a battle. I think, are they wired differently than I am? I, it's, what do you think about that? Well, as someone who has jumped out of planes too, okay. um, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I've been called, um, uh, some names. <laughs> so, I mean, I remember, you know, some of my pilot friends even saying, you know, uh, no good pilot would ever jump out of a perfectly good airplane, <laughs> which I take issue with <laughs> because I am both a pilot and a, a, a skydiver. Mm. Um, wow. But, but yeah, I mean, there's, for me, I... <laughs> I do have this kind of uh, thrill-seeking gene in me. Okay, you know where I am a kind of a adrenaline junkie of sorts. Yep. <laughs> um, so, so I I kind of crave those experiences. Um, some people like are scared of heights. I love the effect that I get when I'm standing at a height on a bridge or, or you know, any place really. Um, but yeah, so maybe there's some different wiring, but you know, with the the paratroopers in World War II, I'm not sure how much how much choice they had. That's right. You know, that's right. And I think people, I think they were given some training, but they were also told, "This is what you're going to do. This is what we need you to do." Yeah, they sure do. Right. So, yeah, Leslie, this has been great. How can people learn more about you? The things you've written. You have a website I they do. can go yeah. to. Yeah. So um, probably the easiest thing is to just Google my name, Leslie Wickman, and um, you'll find all kinds of uh, publications and podcasts and YouTube shows and whatnot. And um, you'll find my my book, God of the Big Bang. Yeah. Um, you can also go to my website, uh, which is starrynights.me, um, starrynights.me. Uh, with a lot of resources there. Um, but yeah, like I say, you'll find all of this if you just Google my name, Leslie Wickman. You're, I know you're going to give a staff talk here at RTB. What's that topic on? It's called uh, Glimpses of Heaven on Earth, My Journey in Science and Faith. Wonderful. 
Yeah. So that would be fun. It's been so nice having you. Thank you as well for coming and being a visiting scholar. We were all benefit from that. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. All Joe, right. To you. And I'll just uh, remind our listeners that, uh, Leslie, you've written at least one blog for us uh, recently mm -hmm. for part of our Voices channel. It's called I'm a Scientist Because God Pursued Me. So if people go to our website, we have a blog channel called Voices for our scholar community members. And Leslie, you wrote an article there not long ago, maybe about a year ago or so. Mm -hmm. So people can uh, read that. Again, it's called I'm a Scientist because God pursued me. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this podcast. Uh, remember to let us know your comments and questions. You can reach Ken via his Twitter handle at RTB underscore K samples. You can subscribe to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify, and you'll get an episode delivered to you each week. For the team, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.